Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Tonight, we're rebroadcasting an interview that Rabbi Wilds did on Facebook Live. It's a special event for Holocaust Remembrance Day. You'll hear the story of survival, heroism, and faith from Dr. Moshe Avital, a Holocaust survivor. He was a teenager that withstood the horrors of the concentration camps of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. In this very special episode of the Wilds cast, listen to Dr. Avital tell Rabbi Wilds about his experience during World War II, and he offers up hope for the world in these trying times. everyone. I hope uh, you're able to see and hear me okay. And uh, my very, very special guest, MGE's very special guest this year, Dr. Moshe Avital, who I will be uh, introducing in just a moment. I want to thank each and every one of you who have joined us this evening and apologize. Uh, we just got to a last minute glitch technologically, but it appears that we are on and we are live. Um, so welcome everyone and thank you for, for joining us this very, very special event on this incredibly important night of Yom HaShoah to commemorate the six million and the Holocaust. I want to thank each and every one of you who have joined us and appreciate you tuning in and joining us for this very important program. Uh, I hope that I can um, just want to make sure we're on, we're good. We're on, we're good. I need a little indication from somebody. Just text, just ask if we can. Just I to make can sure hear you. Okay, good. Who is that? that is. My name is Reva Hausman. Is that it? So I want to thank you. Okay, Anita, welcome. Um, Tonight's program is sponsored in memory of Harry and Terry Panuski, a blessed memory, the grandparents of our dear friend and MG participant, Amanda Dreyer, who's a beloved part of the MG community. I wanna give special thanks to my dear friends, Alan and Alicia Pines, uh, who made this event possible, all in memory of Amanda's grandparents, Harry and Terry Panuski, both of whom were Holocaust survivors. And may the program tonight that we experience serve as an aliyat neshamaz, an elevation for the souls of all of the six million, and in particular, the Pernuski, Harry and Terry Pernuski, for whom this program is dedicated. Now, as many of you know, MGE's mission is to engage the 20s and 30s community of New York City and to engage them in Jewish life. And so by definition, we don't have anyone in our own community who, of course, themselves experienced the horrors of the Shoah. Our generation has thankfully been spared the pain that so many of our beloved grandparents were subject to. And since we didn't experience this event ourselves, we have to learn about it from others. And if we don't, then with the simple passage of time, the historical memory, memory begins to fade. Now you can read books, you can visit museums, but there's nothing compared to actually hearing from someone who was there, someone who witnessed personally and experienced the horrors of the Shoah. And so each year at MGE, rather than us simply speaking to you about this event, we feel that as long as we're blessed to have survivors with us, it's incumbent upon us to give them an audience so we can hear for ourselves 
from an eyewitness what transpired, what they actually went through, and how, of course, they survived. This year, we are privileged to hear from someone who not only survived the Shoah physically, but someone who went on to become a great Jewish leader, author, and scholar, and who has de dedicated his entire life post the Shoah to sharing the beauty of Judaism with other people. As many of you have heard me say in the past, if we want to truly ensure the memory of the six million, then we have to do more than simply remember or commemorate. We must embrace the very life that our grandparents lived in Europe. Holocaust commemorations are imperative. And I commend you all for joining us here tonight. And I want to take this opportunity to thank Rachel uh, Ben-Lisa, who's operating all of the logistics here, Rabbi Ezra Cohn, the entire MG staff at Tara, who was very, very helpful in securing uh, Dr. Avital initially, and the whole MGE community for being here tonight. And I thank you for being us with us online. But to keep the memory of the six million alive, to truly keep the flame of Judaism burning strong, we have to do more than simply remember. We have to learn to actually appreciate and ultimately embrace the very Jewish heritage that our grandparents and our great-grandparents lived and so cherished. And that's really what MJ's mission is. So whether it's celebrating Shabbat, it's coming online for any of our amazing classes. We've tried during this period of Corona to be relevant and to still stay an important part of your life and to learn how to read Hebrew, to travel to Israel with us, please God, soon. And that's how the memory of the six million will live on. It will live on through us, through our actions and through the way that we live our lives as Jews today. And that's why our speaker tonight is so special to us at MGE, because as I say, Dr. Moshe Avital didn't only survive the Shoah, he went on to live and to write and to teach what it means to be a Jew. And there's another reason why Dr. Avital is so important for us to hear in this particular year on Yom HaShoah 2020. And that is because he is an incredibly, as you will hear, upbeat and positive person. And despite the hardships that he endured during his life, he lives his life with positivity, with gratitude, and with religious conviction. And I feel that his faith and his optimism can help all of us keep a perspective during the COVID virus, when so many of us are so socially isolated from each other and going through a lot of stress to help us remain positive during this crisis. And so I wanna thank Dr. Avital for being here for many reasons and in particular this year. Here's the bio and then we're gonna bring Dr. Avital on. Um, Rachel, you can bring Dr. Avital on now if you would like, but I'm gonna continue. Um, oh, I don't actually see him. Okay, that's fine. Um, Dr. Moshe was only a teenager when his town in Czechoslovakia was taken over and his family was eventually forced into the ghetto and then taken to the unimaginable. And he somehow withstood the horrors of six concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And he somehow survived the death march. Death march, only 400 out of 10,000 people survived. And tonight we're gonna to hear a detailed account of what it was like during the Holocaust and the faith, the spiritual faith that it took to survive until Dr. Avital was liberated in April 16th. 
1945. After he recovered from the war, Moshe, Dr. Moshe Avital joined the Haganah and he fought in Israel's war of liberation, Milchemet HaShichrur, from 1947 to 1950. He also fought in the 1956 Sinai campaign with the IDF and then came to the United States to pursue his advanced studies. And he earned a bachelor's and master's degree in education and ultimately a PhD in Hebrew literature from Yeshiva University. For 50 years now, Dr. Avital has served in many different educational positions in the United States. He speaks six languages and has also served and continues to serve as a translator. And most importantly, he's married to an awesome woman, Anita, who I wanna thank his wife of many, many years for helping set this up and for being such a wonderful support. And I wanna welcome her to our program. And together, uh, Moshe and Anita have three daughters, 11 grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren, as we say in French, Bli Ayn Hara. Dr. Avital is a well-known author and speaker on the Holocaust, and he presents testimony both as a survivor and a Jewish educator, bringing to light many unknown facts of the Holocaust era. And he provides a unique psychological, philosophical, and theological perspective on the Shoah, as well as reflections regarding the Nazis, the perpetrators themselves. Dr. Avital has published 17 books, which can all be found on his website, uh, www.mosheavital.com, Moshe, M-O-S-H-E-A-V-I-T-A-L.com, the most recent of which is entitled Hope, Faith, Resilience, What the Germans Couldn't Take From Us. And there's another book that hasn't been published yet. It's about to be published. It's literally in the publishing house. Can There Be Forgiveness? for the Holocaust. And our discussion yesterday, when we were reviewing what we were going to try to share and the questions I was going to pose Dr. Avital, he shared with me that someone in the camps once said to him that what he most feared was that if the Nazis were somehow successful in destroying everyone in that camp, his friend asked him, Moshe, how will anyone ever know what happened to us? And Moshe told me that at that moment, he took a vow. He made what's called in Hebrew a neder, a vow to God. And he said that if I survive, I will spend the rest of my life sharing what I saw. And I want to thank you, Dr. Avital, for coming tonight and keeping your promise to your friend and keeping alive the memory of the six million by serving as a witness. And not only as a witness, but a person of great faith and optimism that we could all use at this time in our own lives. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Moshe Avital, it's an honor and pleasure. Um, okay, uh, I can't hear anything, but I'm gonna start to speak. Okay, Dr. Avital, thank you for joining us tonight and sharing what you witnessed. Let's start from the very beginning. Can you hear? Can you tell us a little about your life before the war, where you grew up, what your family life was like? I come from a shtetl, a town called Bilke, 
in eastern Czechoslovakia. The town had 10,000 population, 2,000 of them were Jews. My father was the cantor and shochet of the town. We were 11 brothers and sisters. I was the youngest. And I had a real intensive Jewish and general education. It was a different kind of approach than in America. When I was three and a half years old, uh, I started to go to Cheder. And by the age of four, I knew already how to read Hebrew, uh, the Siddur and other <laughs> Hebrew books. Uh, and when I was six years old, I entered the Czech public school because every student had to go to Czech public to the public school. Uh, otherwise, the parents would go to jail. Uh, in in our area and the Carpathians, uh, the population was mostly Ukrainian or Ruthenian, as they called them. And uh, they spoke the Ruthenian language. So they had an autonomy uh, for culture and they had their own public school. But all the Jews went to the Czech public school uh, until the Hungarians uh, occupied our town when the Czech public school was eliminated. So we went to the Ukrainian uh, public school. Mm -hmm. uh, but the change was immediately noticed because some of the young people were anti-Semites. Mm -hmm. I was sitting in the bench with my friend Moshe and uh, I had pears and then before I went to school, I used to put them behind my ears. And we were sitting in, on the bench in the middle of the lesson. The two boys behind us started to pull our pears. And I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. And we went out for recess. Moshe Brown and I beat up those boys that did it to us. And they were crying and they ran to the teacher and told them what happened. The teacher called us and put us in front of the class and scolded us and they said that they are calling our parents. My father was called, he came to the school and without asking any questions of me, he gave me two smacks on, in my face and I, I was astonished. When I came home, I was crying terribly. And I said to my father, Allah Shalom, I was trying to defend the Jewish honor and you come and you hit me in front of the, of the Goyim. And he said, what can we do? We are in Golus. We have to try to pass this period of time. And uh, he was trying to explain to me why he did it. 
for mm -hmm. a month, I didn't go to the school until my father got a letter saying that if I don't show up in school, he'll go to jail. So I had to go back. But it didn't last long because soon after that, all the Jewish children were expelled from the Yerutanian uh, public school. Wow, thank you for sharing that. In, in 1941, when, when your country, Moshe, was then divided into those three territories that we spoke about before, uh, the German, Slovakian, and Hungarian, is that when you started feeling, I mean, you had that experience in school, when did you start experiencing anti-Semitism throughout the area where you were living? Uh, all along there was anti-Semitism, um, not on the surface, uh, but we used to come home in the evening from the cheder, uh, the Jewish, the Gentile boys threw stones at us and they yelled in Ruthenian, Jeder the Palestine, meaning Jews go to Palestine. Uh, and uh, now the Arabs say that the Jews should go back to Europe. That's the irony of it. And then what happened when the Hungarians took over then? Uh, the Hungarians came in in 1939 and they decreed all kinds of decrees. Jews were not allowed to have properties, no business, and, and professionals were not allowed to, to practice their, their professions. And all males, 18 to 50, were mobilized to the labor battalions, which the Hungarians called Munko Tabor. And 100,000 Jewish men from the Carpathians, Transylvania, and parts of Yugoslavia, which were occupied by the Hungarians, were sent to the Ukraine to help the Germans build fortifications uh, and uh, airfields and roads. And they suffered a great deal. Many of them died there and perished in these camps. Two of my brothers, unfortunately, were among the victims. So the Hungarians were a, a very terrible people. They were fascists, and they did a lot of harm to the Jewish people. And, and what was it like for you just as a child during this period of time um, in terms of getting food and just living day to day at this time? Um, everything was rationed. And if uh, uh, the family had uh, certain coupons that you had to go, let's say, to the bakery to get a bread but not always did they have the bread. So sometimes you had to get up four o'clock in the morning and go to the bakery and wait until the, this bread is baked and give it to you. And many times the bread was like mud. It wasn't finished before they gave it out. Wow. Now, when you are gonna fast forward just a little. In 1944, you mentioned to me you were 14 and you and your family were then expelled from 
your hometown in Czechoslovakia to this ghetto. I'm, I don't want to mispronounce the name of the ghetto, but it starts with a B, B-E-R. Texas. Okay. Can you, just, can you describe your experience there to us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1944, the last day of Pesach, the Hungarians announced that the next day we are going to leave for a ghetto and that we can take only five pounds for each person. So that night on uh, Motsei Achag, we were packing feverishly uh, important things such as pictures, uh, documents, and uh, religious items like talit and tefillin, and also a little bit of food, uh, durable food. And uh, the next morning, two uh, Hungarian policemen with soldiers showed up at each house and they sealed the, the, the house with all your belongings. And they told us to go to the yard of the synagogue. And when we got to the yard of the synagogue, the entire community was there. And the Hungarians surrounded the place with, uh, with bayonets and they called out family by family and we had to line up. And then the march started to the train station. Uh, this march was very difficult because the males, the able-bodied were in the Ukraine. So we, we had to help each other whenever we could. Then we arrived finally after hours to the train station. There was there a, a, a train with boxcars and the Hungarian police with their helpers pushed us in into the wagons, a hundred people into a wagon. And they closed the doors and the train started to move and uh, went to the ghetto. In Czech it was called Berehovo and in Hungarian Bereksas. This used to be a uh, brick factory. There were no walls, no doors, no windows, just the roof and a few supporting columns. And we had to sleep on the floor and it was very crowded because there was only that much room in each of these structures. The ghetto uh, management gave out once a day some soup. But there was a question whether it was kosher or not. And there were many people that didn't want to eat it because of that. The women had a hard time to prepare some food for the families. So we went outside into the field. We put together a few stones and brought some branches and wood and lit a fire and the women were cooking whatever they could scrape together. Uh, we, when we left, we took with us the masa from Pesach, we still had masas. And my mother was a very good cook 
and she made all kinds of good goodies from these matzahs. I mean, you remember, if you can tell us a little what you were feeling, you had the matzahs from your mother and her home-cooked meals, but all of this craziness was going on. What, I mean, you were, you were just a kid. What were you feeling like? Well, I was very angry. I, uh, I didn't know what will happen because we heard all kinds of rumors. And uh, I was hoping that this nightmare will end very soon. And of course, we were always thinking about our brothers who were in the Ukraine. We didn't know what happened to them. And uh, after two months, um, we were told that they are going to be moved to a more secure place because the Russian army is coming closer, which was a lie. And they told us to uh, deliver all the valuables to the authorities. So they put big baskets in front of each structure and the people had to throw in the money or any valuables that they had. And uh, I, I read in the paper that until this day, the Hungarians have all this gold and silver, all the valuables in, in their treasury, which uh, is supposed to cover for their money. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Can you tell us a little about then uh, when the, the ghetto was liquidated and you left and what that was like and your next step, um, I guess, to the concentration camps? Yes. Uh, three days before Shavuot, we were taken again to the boxcars and put in a hundred people and also two containers on each boxcar, one with water and one for human waste. And the doors closed and the train was moving. We didn't know where they are taking us. Uh, and every boxcar has on top near the roof, a little opening and it's secured with barbed wire. And the people that were standing near it, although it was very high, they stood on the shoulders of somebody and they looked out whenever the train stopped the name of the station. So they saw a name, Kosice. Kosice was on the border between Ruthenia and Slovakia. And the train continued. Then it stopped and the doors opened up and two high ranking officers, one Hungarian and one uh, SS with a loudspeaker, they announced from this moment on, you are under the command of the German army and the doors closed and the train continued. And two days later, they see uh, the people that were standing nearby, the name of uh, another station, Krakow. So we knew already that we are in Poland. And the, the train was going and stopping, going and stopping. People were dying in the, in the boxcar from hunger and from thirst. Uh, 
and also from the uh, it, it was we were like sardines together and it was a terrible scene uh, until we reached the fifth day and on the fifth day they looked out again and they saw a station and they didn't know where we ended up because they never heard the name and they asked the hunt and the boxcar uh, did you ever hear the name Auschwitz? When nobody heard. So that's where we arrived. And soon after that, the doors opened up and all hell broke loose. The SS with ferocious dogs were chasing out the people from, from the boxcars. And there was a big problem because the boxcars were very high and there were no steps to go up. So the elderly and the children had a tough time to get off the train. And they were yelling, rouse, rouse, out, out, schnell, schnell, fast, and beating up those that didn't go fast. And they told everybody that women and children should line up in one column and man in another column. And that was the last time that I saw my mother, Aleha Shalom, and five sisters and six of their children. Two of them were married already. And my brother Yosef, who was two and a half years older than I, was with me and my father. And everybody had to stand in front of this officer. At that time, I didn't know who this officer is, but then I found out. And when I stood in front of Mangala, I was four, 14 and something old. And he asked me how old I am. I told him that I'm 16. And for a moment, he hesitated. And he sent me to the right where my brother Yosef he sent. My father he sent to the left. But that day, we didn't know what it meant left or right. How did you know, how did you know, um, Moshe, to, to lie about your age, to make yourself appear older? There was a uh, unit in Auschwitz, uh, prisoners who have been there for a while. It was called the Canada Unit. They uh, appeared every time a transport came, they appeared on the platform and they were going around to collect the bundles because we were told to leave our luggage on the platform. And at the time when they picked up the luggage, they also were telling quietly all kinds of things to, to the people. Uh, if they saw a mother that had a little boy or a, a girl and the, her mother was with her, they used to tell them, give the child to your mother and save yourself. And so they told me to say that I am older. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, when I was sent to my uh, brother, I was very happy because at least I was with him. 
and they took us into a huge barrack. Uh, in the first room, they told us to get undressed. And oh, I'm sorry, Moshe. So that yeah. was, you're with your brother Yosef? You're with your brother Yosef, yes. and, and it, no one else from your family at this point? No, no. We were alone now. Just All your sisters, family. your father. No, my sisters and my mother and the, the six uh, eight o'clock were together with them. I didn't know what happened to them. And uh, my father was sent to the left and I didn't know what happened to him. So we, uh, in, in this structure, they told us to get undressed and put all our clothing and shoes on piles. Then they took us in into the next room and there were prisoners, barbers, and they were shaving us from head to toe. And then they took us into the next room. There was a huge swimming pool with some dirty water, we thought. It was disinfectant and it had a terrible odor. And after that, they took us to the next room. We showered and finally, we got to a room where they gave out the uniforms. Uh, there was the prisoners uh, were standing in front of tables and they had the uniforms. They didn't ask you what is your size. They just threw at you a uniform. At me, they threw a huge uniform that was falling off me, I couldn't wear it. I was lucky that near me was a tall husky fellow whom they threw a small size and we exchanged. And that's how I was able to do it. And after that, they marched us in, into Auschwitz. We passed the sign, Arbeit macht frei. Arbeit, work is liberty. And they took us to a, a barrack, a thousand prisoners into this barrack. And on both sides of the walls, there were shelves built, three stories high. These were our beds. There were no mattresses, no blankets, no pillows, no sheets, nothing. We had to lie on the plain wood. And- uh, Were you in the same barrack with your brother, with Yosef? Yes, we always tried to be together. And uh, then appeared a high-ranking SS officer, and he made a pep speech. And he said, this is Auschwitz. You should know, don't forget, this is a concentration camp, not a recuperation place. Arbeit macht frei, you must work. If you don't work, you'll go straight to the furnace. The choice is yours, Arbeit or the furnace. And he left. Everyone scared by now, you can imagine how we felt. How did you how did you process all this? I mean, it came so fast. Everything and that was their secret. Everything was done on the double. Everything was done very fast, and you didn't have time to think. That's how how much the pressure was.
And you were able to stay with Yosef? You were able to remain I with him? I with Yosef. He slept on the same, on the same uh, section with, uh, uh, on the shelf. And the next morning, we went out to work on a construction site. And uh, we worked for 12 hours. And we came back. Now, uh, the food that they gave out uh, consisted of 700 calories. And uh, in the morning, they gave for every five prisoners because they told us always to line up five in a row. To every five prisoners, uh, they gave a bowl of black coffee, which was dirty water. And the first one drank, then he passed it on to the second and the third and so on. However, when it came to the third or fourth prisoner, there was nothing left already because everybody was so hungry and they were trying to drink. And there were fights and the Germans did it purposely in order to make bad blood between the prisoners. And uh, on, the, on the construction site, we stopped for a half hour and they gave us lunch, supposedly. The lunch consisted of a very small bowl with soup, which was mostly water. If once in a while you could find a piece of carrot or cauliflower or any other vegetable, that was a big feast. And we went back to work. And in the evening, after 12 hours, we returned to the camp. And at the gate, there was roll call again. They counted us if everybody is back. When we came to the bunk, to the barrack, they uh, gave a piece of bread, jam, or margarine. That was the, the, the supper. Now the bread that they gave us was a slice and that the, the flour was mixed with sawdust. Can you imagine what kind of a bread that was? And even that, if they would have given us a larger piece, at least your stomach would have been filled. Now there was, uh, the prisoners developed three different philosophies of how to eat this bread, because this was the most precious commodity in the camp. Uh, some took a, a crumb and they hid the last one in your bosom. Some cut it into three pieces, one for breakfast, one for lunch, one for supper. And some ate it at once. Why? Because there were prisoners who were attacking you and taking from you the bread. Uh, I always ate it right away because what was sure is sure. <laughs> and uh, the problem was also at night you were sleeping on these beds and people were making, you know, they were urinating and all kinds of things. It was a terrible thing. And you were there, you mentioned to me for two months. 
yeah. and then you were, you were sent to another camp then? We were sent, my brother Yosef and I were sent to Plushov. That's the camp where Schindler's List was made. That was the camp where they, he had this factory. Uh, and uh, when we came to Plushov, on the roll call, uh, uh, you know, like it looked like a parking lot. There were SS men behind tables and each one of us had to walk over to him. And he asked, what is your profession? <laughs> I didn't have a profession. I said, I'm a student. So he wrote down for me, hard labor. My brother learned in ho at home from my sister how to sew on a sewing machine. So he said that he is a tailor because he heard from somebody right near, he was standing there, that in Plashov there are tailor shops where they make the German uniforms. Mm -hmm. So he became a tailor and he had it easier because it was inside. He had no problem with the weather or anything. I was marching out every morning for eight kilometers from the camp to the train station of Krakow. And there we had to load and unload German equipment that was sent to the Russian front. And this went on for four months. We always made sure that we line up on the same row of five because we heard that families sometimes is separated. In the middle of the night, we are woken up by the capos and they were beating us to get out and line up. And in the confusion, we did not line up in the same row of five. Yose was just a couple of rows away from me. An SS officer came and he started to count from the beginning. Eins, zwei, drei, one, two, three, until he came to my row. He said, above face, and they took us to the train station. And that was the last time I saw him. You were, um, so you were there at Plusha for four months. Yeah. And that was the last time you saw your brother. Yeah. But I found out later what happened. How, how did you handle that when you were, you were sent to another camp? I was. Bolkenheim, Bolkenheim I, I think you mentioned. It was a terrible camp. I was sent to that camp and uh, I was alone now. It, it, it was terrible. You didn't know where everybody is. <laughs> I, uh, I was trying to find out what happened to him for months and months until after I came to Buchenwald, I uh, 
saw a landsman from our town, a boy that was with us in Plashov. And he came later from Plashov to Buchenwald. And I said to him, Mandy, do you know what happened to my brother Yosef? He said, yes, unfortunately, in December of 1944, he entered the infirmary and he never came out. Now, you know, usually in a civilized world, people, if they are sick, they go to an infirmary and they are treated. There, if you went into the infirmary, it was dead for sure. They injected in their heart gasoline and they killed him right away as soon as they came to the infirmary. And that's what they did to my brother. We're getting closer to the end of the war now. And you mentioned that um, you were in Plushov until January, 1945. And the Nazis were telling you that, to, that they had to move deeper into Germany because the Russians were coming. Um, and that's, I think, when the death march began because now um, they were just trying to move you around, get you out of the camps because they were running from the Russians at this point. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. Uh, this was from Camp Bolkenheim. Uh, after Plashov, I was sent to Bolkenheim, where I worked in an airplane factory. Uh, in January of 1945, an order was given to uh, clear out Camp Bolkenheim that the Russians are coming. This time it was true, because we heard the artillery duel between the Russians and the Germans. And it was early in the morning. It was 20 below zero. It was bitter cold. And uh, also, you have to know that the striped uh, pajamas like that we wore, we wore these in the summer and the winter all the time. We had nothing warm to put on. Sometimes a prisoner uh, uh, found a, a rag someplace and he put it under the uniform. If you were caught, you got 25 lashes. Uh, or sometimes they used the cement bags because and on the construction uh, site, when we used uh, cement, the bags were empty and these were big bags. So we were putting around our, our body and put on on top of it, the uniform. So if anybody was caught, they were very angry about it. They were very, very much afraid of lice and of typhoid. Now we had every month, once a month, we had what they called unclosing. It means that they, they took us in into this barrack. They told us to get undressed and they took the uniforms and they put them in big drives like, and we were waiting naked until this thing was finished. Sometimes it took hours and uh, we were freezing. Uh, 
but it killed the lice, but it didn't kill the eggs. So every month it came back. It was a terrible, the people were constantly removing lice. And then the, uh, as we get a little closer to, to the end of the war, you somehow survived this death march, which I think you mentioned, I mean, in the freezing cold and just endless walking and walking, 400 out of 10,000, how did you survive that? How did you manage to stay alive? Uh, you know, there's a saying in Yiddish, a mensch is starker von Eisen und schwacher von a fleeg, which means a human being is stronger than iron, but weaker than a fly. There were times that I felt very strong in spirit, but very weak in my body. Uh, so I had this drive to survive. I wanted to survive. I figured there's nobody left of the family. So uh, I, uh, I had this drive constantly thinking about that I must survive. And I ate snow because it didn't give us food. At night, we, they used to put us in into barns and schools in the German villages and the SS were, were guarding around. And during the day we marched. They didn't, we didn't march during the night because they were afraid that somebody might run away. And uh, sometimes I even tried to help the stragglers, the, the weaker ones, when they walked very slowly and the guards were yelling at them. And the guards pushed them aside and uh, shot them and threw them to the side. Thousands and thousands of Jews were killed that way. Now the Germans uh, developed this uh, death march uh, program for two reasons. They didn't have any more trains because the allies bombed a lot of the trains. And also the Germans needed it for their army for the retreat. So they took the prisoners and they took them on this death march. Mm -hmm. Did you ever, did you ever, while you were marching them, these SS officers, I mean, this went on for hours and hours every day. Did you have any, was there any conversation, any dialogue with them? You were quiet, you spoke to the other people. Yeah, I want to tell you what happened with one, with one of them. There was one of the guards that he took his backpack and gave it to a prisoner to carry it for him. And this prisoner, after a while, opened it up and he saw that there is food in it. He ate as much as he could and gave to the people around him and threw away the bag. After a while, the assessment was looking for the prisoner, but he couldn't find them because everybody looked alike. 
we had the same uniforms. We were emaciated. The snow covered us. So he looked and he looked and he asked around and nobody knew. Now this was our dilemma. We many times, we didn't know what to do. If to squeal on somebody, if, if he did something wrong in order to save other people or not to do anything that has to do with the Germans. So nobody told anything. Uh, the soldier went over to the commandant, the one who led the column and told them what happened. And uh, the commandant announced that whoever took the backpack, come forward. Nobody moved. And again, the same thing. Finally, he says, if the one who took it doesn't come forward, every 10th prisoner will be shot. And the two minutes passed and they went and they started to take out every 10 prisoner, they lined them up. And just before they were going to shoot them, a prisoner came forward and said, I was the one who did it. Now, we don't, we never knew whether it was the real prisoner or it was a Jewish man that volunteered to sacrifice himself in order to save so many Jews. So these were the dilemmas that we had. So uh, the march went on and uh, we finally, finally arrived in Buchenwald in the middle of the night, 400 of us. We were completely uh, uh, so tired, we had no idea. Uh, some SS men from Buchenwald came. They looked at us. Uh, we were a few teenagers. So they took us into the children's barrack, barrack 66, where Ali Wiesel and Rabbi Lau and a few others were there. So that's where I ended up in the children's barrack. Tell us a little then about the, the story of your liberation. And I also, afterwards, will really want to make sure if you can share with us how you maintained your amuna, your faith in Hashem, and was able to maintain whatever religious traditions you were able to maintain in those years. Okay. Uh... On January 7th, I mean, on April 7th, 1945, the Commandant in Buchenwald received an order to eliminate all the prisoners and destroy the installations. And we found out later from the Americans that uh, uh, they intercepted a uh, train with Hitler Jugend, with Hitler Youth, that were sent to Buchenwald in order to help the SS to eliminate everybody. So, but the Americans caught them and took them to prison. Uh, and 
we uh, we didn't know what was happening. We only heard rumors that Americans are nearby. And they started to take barrack by barrack into the forest. And in the forest, there were trucks with machine guns and SS. As the group arrived, they shot everybody. This went on for four days. When our turn came now, we were also taken from, the, from our barrack and we were walking very slowly. I, I couldn't walk anymore. I was dragging my feet, coming closer to the gate. And just before we reached the gate, the sirens started to wail as if they were crying. And the SS closed the gate and they ran for cover. Soon after that, American airplanes came and started to bomb all the SS installations outside the camp. And uh, this went on for hours until midnight that, that day. Where, where you, where, where, what did you do when, when the Nazis were taking cover from the barrage? Where, where did you go? Uh, our uh, chief of the barrack, who came from Czechoslovakia, who was not Jewish, was a wonderful man. He told us to run back to the barrack, but I couldn't run. I was crawling on my stomach until I reached my barrack. And we were there and we didn't know what, what was happening uh, until the morning. When the morning came, we saw that a few prisoners were running to the, to the flagpole and pulled up a white flag. After that, three American tanks of the 6th Armed Division uh, broke through the gate and also a jeep. And in that jeep was Rabbi Herschel Schechter from Yeshiva University. He was a chaplain. And he came in into our barrack, into the children's barrack, and said in Yiddish, Yiddish kinder, ears and fry, Jewish children, you are free. And that's how we were liberated. What? Yeah, well, I, uh, when all this went on in the last minute, when, when the Americans were bombing and all that, I, uh, Remember the, the prayer that Shimshon said when he did with the Flish team. Chaskenina Bamsenina Achapam. I said that prayer. Well, he helped me. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of similarities between you and Shimshon, Moshe. Both <laughs> true heroes of the Jewish people. So you're liberated now. Can you tell us a little, um, was there ever a time during all of this craziness you were actually able to maintain your Judaism, to practice Judaism, celebrate any Jewish holidays or anything? How did you survive spiritually? I'll tell you, uh, I come from a religious home and uh, I was brought up, they implanted in me 
that a day will come and the Jewish people will be liberated and that the Gula will come and the Jewish people will return to the land of Israel uh, and so on. And I, I believed in that and I, and I uh, uh, was waiting for that moment. Now, I, I can tell you this, that uh, there were times that I, I had uh, I, I jotted down today a couple of things about the Muna. Those of you listening, Amuna means faith. Yeah. Belief. Actually, we can learn a great deal about Amuna from Yosef, Jacob's son, that he was sold to Egypt and he did not give up his religion and his Judaism. Uh, he was the one who kept it under very difficult circumstances. Uh, we are a nation that possesses great DNA. It's in our DNA. And I felt all the time that no matter what, I would not give up my my Judaism, uh, and also our patriarchs and matriarchs, they created for us a path which enabled us to overcome the, the tremendous uh, challenges and tests. We know that Abraham Avinu went through Asaranis Yonot he was tested 10 times. It was a test. It was testing us what, what, we, what we will do. Now you ask me if any observances took place. It was very difficult because they were looking for people that, that were trying to uh, celebrate uh, any any holiday or anything like that. Uh, I read by uh, Primo Levi. Uh, he, when he arrived in Auschwitz, he was wondering what he is doing there. He thought he is an Italian. And then he saw in the corner of one of the barracks, there was a group of Jews who were standing and davening. So he was very envying them because they had something to hold on to. I also had something to hold on to, to my heritage, to, uh, to God, to Eretz Israel. There were certain things that I knew that it's going to change. It's just a matter of having the strength and the patience. Uh, Incredible. And did, and did you feel also, Moshe, like there was just so many times when, you know, it's just so difficult sometimes for us under, to understand how some people make it and some people unfortunately didn't. Do, do you feel as though, I mean, you know, you're not a prophet as great of a man as you are, so I don't know if you can give a definitive answer, but do you feel somehow that, that Hashem, that God was somehow watching over you and he wanted you to 
to continue somehow. Definitely. Let me tell you, I was many times on the verge of death. Many times. And each time, just before that, I felt like a hand was leading me. I felt it. So. Incredible. Yeah. And did that somehow inspire you to, I mean, upon, you know, liberation, was there something else you wanted to say? I'm sorry. Yeah, I wanted to say this that you asked me before if uh, there were observances. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Buchenwald, during Hanukkah, uh, we wanted to light candles, but we didn't have candles. So what did they do? They took out thread from their clothing and they made uh, the a wig and they put it in into they took margarine and melted it so that would serve as oil and that's how we were able to light the candles unbelievable and you you mentioned to me something about about a day of the week did you know when like it was a regular day or shabbos when when um yes uh there were some people that kept a calendar. Uh, they were hiding it. They, they made it up themselves in order for us to know when Shabbat is and when the holidays come out and so on. But it's interesting that the Germans knew exactly when there is a Jewish holiday. And on those days, they were more ferocious than any other days. So we knew already that if something happens, let's say before Pesach, we knew that Pesach is coming because they are the ones who are uh, doing to us a lot of harm. It's unbelievable. I'm wondering, uh, just one or two things left, if it's okay. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. I, I can't tell you how inspirational it is for all of us to hear you speak the way you do. Um, um, you know, many in the Jewish community have been affected in the, in the world, obviously, by, by what's happening by the COVID, uh, by coronavirus. I mean, any, any advice, any wisdom? Um, you know, MJE is an organization, as you know, which is committed to engaging young 20s and 30s. A lot of people are alone. Unfortunately, a lot of older people have passed away as well. Anything you can share about that briefly? Well, a, a person has to be strong and, and uh, try to overcome this by, by uh, not giving in. He has to be strong and uh, he has to realize that uh, God doesn't want anybody to die just like that. That uh, this is a, a plague that was brought upon us, which will go away. But in the meantime, we have to be careful what we do and uh, in order to, to um, prevent from, from getting involved. 
Thank you. Now you said something about your family, something to the effect of how your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are the greatest revenge against the Nazis. Tell us a little about that and, and yeah. the nachas you've had from your family. Yeah, well, uh, uh, we have three daughters, Baruch Hashem, wonderful daughters, and they have 11 grandchildren. Uh, one be more beautiful and more talented than the other. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then we have two great-grandchildren, which were born just a year ago. And when the two great-grandchildren were born, I said that one of them, if to me, is Nechama, uh, my comfort, and the other one, is Nikama, my revenge. <laughs> and so is the, all the children uh, of the Jews that were born after the Holocaust. And I say that every Jewish child after the, the Holocaust is very precious and that we uh, have to uh, try to, to bring them up according to our traditions and that there should be a continuation uh, of our faith and our belief and so on. And you, and you, yeah, please. <laughs> now, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, one of my granddaughters got married and awesome. I, I was standing and talking to somebody and they came over to me and they said, Saba, Saba, come, we need you. They took me on the dancing floor. They took a chair and they set me down on the chair in the middle. And all 11 grandchildren marched in uh, around me and they had on uh, t-shirts which said, Yaldei Hanisim, the miracle children. Uh, and uh, also on the other side, on their back, was written who won, the, which one was the first, second, and third, and so on. And that was a scene to see. That uh, and I said to myself, "Here is my command Hitler, that he he wanted to destroy the Jewish people, but he can't, and he will never be able to." <laughs> I wonder if you think about, thank you so much for sharing that. I wonder, you know, if you think about that at the Seder, we just finished Passover, you know, and we say, <laughs> that in every generation, our enemies rise up against us to strike right. us down. I just wonder what that's like, what you think about when you get to that passage in the Haggadah. Yeah, I also say that uh, uh, it, it says, uh, that everyone has to see himself as if we are Sami Mitzrayim. And I as though, as though we ourselves Jew, left Egypt. Uh, that every Jew has to look at, at himself as if he, uh, it's right there. This one? Uh, I wanted to show you something. Okay, sure. 
uh, a year and a half ago, I had my 90th birthday. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually, you know, you, you make a party, you have cake, this, that. Uh, my, my family surprised me with something which will last for forever. They made up a Haggadah that says Haggadah Shal Moshe. Oh, McCoy, can you lift that up a little further? A little higher, just higher up? Oh my God, Haggadah Le Moshe. Oh, that was gorgeous. Now, what did they do? What did they do? It's in Hebrew and in English. They took the regular Haggadah and each one of the family picked out the Pasuk and they gave an interpretation at Var Torah. So it, it's amazing what, what they What a beautiful gift. You know? You know, it's, uh, I don't know, Haggadah Moshe, it's pretty appropriate, Moshe. Yeah. That you got out of you got out of your own Mitzrayim. You know, your your predecessor was the one who took our ancestors out. True. Very appropriate gift from your family. Yeah. You know, you're speaking of books. Um, you told me that your great grandfather was a rabbi, and that he authored 25 books. And when I asked you, um, you were telling me about your most recent book, which is at the publisher. Can there be forgiveness for the Holocaust? And I asked you what number book that was, and you said 17. And you had like a little, you know, you had just mentioned that your great-grandfather wrote 25. So, um, you know, um, when, when are the next seven coming out? That's the, that's the last question. Eight. <laughs> I hope God will give me life and also a budget for that. <laughs> <laughs> when I just tell everybody that when I... I gave uh, Moshe a, a bracha, not that, you know, if anyone should be giving brachas, it's Moshe. But I said that you should be zocha to live and be well till 120. So you could write at least 25 books like your great grandfather. And he said 120, at least 150. And I said 150. He says, yeah. What did you say back to me? Well, yeah, that is inflation. <laughs> Sweet. You know, uh, uh, since I was an Israeli soldier, that also gave me a lot of courage and a, a, a lot of love for the Jewish people because I saw how beautiful our people are, that there is no other nation in the world that can do things as the Jewish people. Uh, we went through so much but we were also able to create a great deal. So when I was in the army, uh, which is, uh, here is the picture. Oh, I'd love to see that picture. I'm sorry. Get it. I need a thank you. That would be very I'll special. Get it. Wait a minute, I get it. I'll get it. What are wives for? <laughs> Oh my God! Whoa! Well, now now we know another reason why you married him. What a handsome! Look at that! That's awesome. Yeah, that's when I met him. Oh yeah. He's still handsome. Um, um, Anita, why don't you come in? Please oh, join us. 
I'm coming in. Now, uh, have you heard of, of uh, a poet by the name of Yitzchak Katzenelson? I've heard of him. I, I'm not up on his works, but of course he's well known. Yeah. So he uh, wrote a, uh, a poem, which is more than a poem. It's a long, long thing. He called it the song of the murdered Jewish people. And he describes what the Jews are going through. But what I wanted to tell you is this. But he also says that we shouldn't give up. Uh, he wrote a play and the title is Al Naharot Babel, on the rivers of Babylonia that a, an elderly man from the exile from Yehuda uh, saw a young man who wanted to commit suicide. And he scolded him. And he told him the following, and he wrote this. It's, it's unbelievable. I thought that that would be very appropriate as, as far as Emunah. Thank you. I am old. The disaster befell me in my old age. I would prefer to close my eyes at once. And yet, I will not part with life lightly. Life granted us by God, be it short or long, is not merely a gift. It is a command. Stay alive in joy or in sorrow. Stay alive in pleasure or pain. Stay alive in happiness, liberty, and equality. In slavery on alien soil, stay alive. In freedom in your own land. Humiliated and exile, stay alive. Stay alive. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. powerful. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's incredible. I, um, I'd like to, if we can, to bring this to a close. Um, I actually have a couple of candles here that I was going to light um, for the six candles representing the six million. Um, and to recite a Kelamale, uh, with your permission, Moshe, if that's okay, a special tefillah. I have the tefillah here, and uh, and then we'll conclude our program. Um, I, I can't. Know. Yeah, please. With a certain statement. Please. We say to the souls of our people murdered in Europe. Europe's darkest night. We will never forget you. We will not cease to mourn you. We will not let you down until the Jews can walk in the world without fear. We will be witnesses to the God of life who told us, choose life. 
against those who choose that. From the depth of destruction, these survivors brought forth a new spirit to rebuild our lives, to establish families, to raise a wonderful generation of children and grandchildren, the living bridge between our past and our future. We have enlisted in them pride of our heritage. They are links in the unbroken chain of the Jewish people. In conclusion, I would like to say two major events in our time drastically changed the course of Jewish history. The Holocaust, the destruction of European Jewry with its rich cultural and spiritual creations. And the second, the restoration of Jewish independence in the land of Israel and the ingathering of the exiles after 2,000 years. One cannot understand Jewish life today without a thorough knowledge of these two events. I was part of these two events. For the first one, I paid a heavy price. I lost 14 precious souls of my immediate family and 200 of my extended family. In the second one, I'm proud to have participated in the War of Independence as a member of the Haganah. When I was in the camps, people around me were dying all the time. And we prisoners were talking amongst us. We said that all of us will die and nobody will know what happened in the camps. If someone by chance or by God's grace will remain alive, uh, he should tell the world what happened. I made an aider that if I stay alive, I will speak about it, I will write about it. Therefore, I made it my mission. I have written and published books about my experiences in the Holocaust. I give a thorough description of these events and lessons we should learn from the Shoah. I can tell you that the pain and the shock does not diminish. In Auschwitz and other concentration camps, the Germans had a slogan, Arbeit macht frei. We survivors say, Am Yisrael fight. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Something else. I cannot think of a greater Messenger, and thank you, Dr. Avital. Thank you, Moshe. Thank you, Anita, for you being such a walking Kiddush Hashem, a true sanctification of Hashem's name, of, of witness, and not only of the horrors, but of the beauty of Judaism, that you have dedicated your life to teaching and inspiring so many people. I really encourage everyone to get any one of Moshe's 17 books. Please go on his website, MoshaAvital.com, and it's a great time to do this over the next few days. 
And we're going to light the candles in just a moment. And I want to continue to invite all of you to come back uh, Facebook Live tomorrow and every day at 12.30 that I'll be teaching tomorrow uh, more details about the Holocaust. I'll be teaching a class on the U.S. diplomatic response to Kristallnacht tomorrow at 12.30. And please remember that the more, and I started our program off with this message, that the more we embrace our Judaism, the more we become more knowledgeable and learned in what it means to be a Jew and follow in, in Moshe's ways is the way that we will keep the memory of the six million alive by not simply remembering them, but living the lives that they so cherish. And as you can see from Moshe, how devoted he is to Torah and to mitzvot and to perpetuating the memory of the six million. Thank you, Moshe. You're just an incredible blessing. Thank you so much for opening your heart and sharing these painful memories with us. I know that this is not something you take lightly. We don't take it lightly. And, and I know you do it for only one reason, and that is to honor the memory of the six million and to express your own gratitude to God for his blessings in your life. May Hashem bless you and your amazing, amazing family should have continued nachas from your children and your grandchildren. With your permission, I'm going to light uh, candles and we'll recite the Kelmole. ask everybody as we just look at the candles just take a moment to think about Moshe's family his beloved brother Yosef uh, his parents all of his siblings his entire extended family and the entire extended family of the Jewish people six million holy souls who lost their lives and who will never be forgotten El Malay Rachamim Shochein Bamaramim Amit Semenuchan Chonal Kanfe Ashkina Bimaala Hoskadoshimatarim Kizor Rakia Mazirim Es Nishma Hos Hokadoshim Bahatarim Shum subishin ergu, vinishnachatu, vishnis refu, vishnit beu, vishnich neku al kidush hashem. Ali de hatsorim hagermanim yamachshimam bezichram. Vaavu, worshipli neder attends the kabad haskarat, nishmoteem. Begon eiden temenuchatam. Lachain balarachamim yastirim besater kanafav lo lamim. Vitzor, Vitzor, and Chaim es Nishmo Sehem, Adunai, Unachlatam, Vianuchu, Bishalom, Al Mishkotehem, Vinomaha, Amen. A God full of mercy who dwells on high, grand proper rest, on the wings of the divine presence and the lofty levels of the holy and the pure, who shine like the glow of the firmament for the souls of the holy. And pure ones who were killed, murdered, angled, 
in the sanctification of your name through the hands of the German oppressors. May their name and memory be obliterated because without making a vow, we will contribute to charity in remembrance of their souls. May the resting place be in the garden of Eden. Therefore, may the master of mercy shelter them in the shelter of his wings for eternity. May he bind their souls in the bond of everlasting life. Adonai, God is their heritage. And may they repose in peace on the resting place. And let us all respond. Amen. 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 You have a way of getting into his soul. Well, Moshe has a... He's brought out his neshama. You were amazing. I have to tell you. Thank you, Anita. Thank you. I, um, it is such an honor to know both of you. And I had the honor of meeting some of your children and not all of your grandchildren. Um, but I look forward to Zerat Hashem continuing our relationship and on behalf of really everyone at MGE. Uh, Jill, my wife, who's here, and Rabbi Ezra Cohn, and Rabbi Joshua Klein, and Tara, and Wonderful. Rachel, and, um, and Maya, uh, Khani, everyone. We have a whole staff and literally the hundreds of people who are watching this who you just moved to tears tonight, Moshe. May you continue, continue to share your story, your extraordinary story of survival, and not simply survival, but your story of hope and of faith, of Emunat Hashem. You are true Yireh Hashem and Ebed Hashem, and it is just an honor to know you, and I thank you both for participating. We thank everyone at MGE and everyone else who tuned in, and anyone who's listening to this after the fact, we thank you. Please take something from this. Be proud of who you are as a Jew and continue to support the people in the state of Israel. I don't know how many people you will meet in your life who survived Auschwitz and fought in Mulchemet HaShichror, who saw the horrors, the horrors of the concentration camps and fought to create the modern day state of Israel. Am Yisrael Chai. God bless both of you and your beautiful family. May you continue to thrive. Thank you both for participating and being with us. And may the Jewish people continue to live and to be strong. Am Yisrael Chai. Thank you. Thank you. Yaldani Sim. We love you. Yaldani Sim. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for being so patient with me. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Moshe. Thank you, Anita. Dr. Avital. Thank you so much. And you should continue to write. We're looking forward to more and more books in Mitzvah Shem. We're looking forward. Yeah. Okay. I don't know whether I can handle it. But. <laughs> <laughs>